This is episode 62 with Philip Felisa of The Product Startup. This is Crowdfunding Uncut, the place where creators and entrepreneurs come to learn how to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign. Here's your host, Kirsten Ross. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode. I'm Kirsten Ross. This is Crowdfunding Uncut. And today I'm really excited to get into a deep dive conversation with actually one critical step that you should be doing before you even think of raising a dollar through crowdfunding for your project. We have Philip Valisa on the phone with the product startup, and he is um, mechanical engineering background. I'm going to let him get into his story and whatnot, but we're actually going to get into a topic that, um, well, one of the, I know I'm passionate about everything crowdfunding, but specifically, like, I find that a lot of creators are looking to raise money and then develop the pro- the prototype. And there are so many problems with that. And the way that crowdfunding needs to be seen as is you take an idea, you validate it, and you develop the prototype. And then what you're crowdfunding for is actually to manufacture the prototype once you've worked out the initial bugs. And yes, it's a little bit more of an upfront investment, but the headaches that this is going to solve for you long-term is just can't even explain with with this. So Philip, I'm so excited to have you on the show and to dig into your process for how to take an idea from conception straight through to manufacturing before you even get funded. Awesome, Kristen. I'm really excited to be on the show. Yeah, same here. So I would love to find out a little bit about you and because we've only spoken a, a handful of times and I haven't heard your story before. Yeah, so I guess a quick story and why it relates to what I do now. Uh, when I was a kid, my mom and I left Czechoslovakia. It was a communi- communist country at the time. And you weren't allowed to leave, and so we escaped, and that was when I was about five in the mid-80s. And we went down south towards Greece and Athens, and we were waiting to get our papers to come to the States. It ended up taking a lot longer than we expected because there was a lot of immigration going on at the same time through North Africa. Um, So the system was pretty flooded. And so we stayed there for two years. And while we were waiting there, I saw my mom working multiple jobs. We definitely didn't have uh, any money. Um, sharing a home with another immigrant family that was also kind of doing the same. And, um, you know, one day walking by a dumpster, I found a toy truck. It was like this dump truck and that where it had these oversized bolts that you could kind of wrench on yourself, multicolored, that type of thing. And it was missing a front wheel. And I remember pulling it out of the dumpster and finding the, the wheel and I couldn't find the axle for it. So I just jammed this oversized bolt. It probably came from a um, toilet paper roll or something. And I, and I fixed it, you know, I, I took a step back and I, I could pull the, the truck behind me and I thought, wow, you know, this just opened up this, this huge, uh, set of possibilities for me where I had control over my environment, over my destiny, I could build things and I wasn't really reliant on anybody else. And that mentality kind of carried me through while, you know, we were in the States and again, uh, you know, as only child to a single parent watching my mom work two jobs and, um, money was really tight. So I was working, uh, on things on the house as I was older, doing a lot of DIY projects and then eventually went on to study mechanical engineering and work for some small businesses and large corporations, um, helping them uh, to build and design their projects. So with 
when you were doing that, do you focus on any specific part of the design process or do you did you focus on the whole thing? Yeah, it really depends on the company. That's why I enjoyed my experience. I worked for some mom and pop uh, businesses where I did the entire thing from there's a concept that maybe a your customers may have, you know, existing customers that buy other products from you that keep asking you to do something else. Um, to all the way down to you know creating the design and doing all the analysis and then walking it through manufacturing and quality assurance and walking down to the fabrication shop and helping the guys build the first set of units um, because usually if there was an issue with uh, manufacturing and fabrication it was because the engineer uh, didn't design something properly or didn't account for uh, manufacturability um, and then you know getting some of the feedback when it went out to the field and uh, talking to customers and and seeing how they use it and what issues they have with it and how it could be improved. That's awesome. And did you have any specialty? Like, did you work on a multitude of different kinds of projects or did you have a niche that you focused in? Uh, for engineering, I think it tends to be focus on subject matter for example, you'll focus on aeronautical engineering or you'll focus on consumer products. Uh, I worked on a variety of products that go subsea, like under the water, marine type products, um, as well as some products in the oil and gas industry, and then also products that were for like emergency vehicles and things like that. Oh, that's pretty wicked. And did you, I hate, I, like, I hate when someone asks me this question, but did you have a favorite that you worked on? You know, I think the subsea products were the most interesting because it was, I've always wanted to do aerospace and space stuff and subsea is kind of the same thing where you're exploring this deep ocean and you're having to deal with the same types of technical challenges. You, uh, you're a few miles below the surface and there's tons of pressure and there's no light and you can't see what you're doing and um, you know, there, you have to do everything remotely because it's not safe for people to, to work at that depth. Um, so it was very, to me, it was really interesting. Yeah. And did you have, is there one or two products you could tell us about that you worked on? Uh, maybe, you know, it's not anything that would be that exciting. If anyone is familiar with remote operated vehicles or these robots that, pilots will drive from on a vessel so there's a boat that's out there that overboards a robot and it has these arms like claw-like arms and it has jets on the back to kind of uh, push it around and it does work at different depths in the ocean um, to like construction type work or turning valves or um, you know anything that anything that needs to be done capturing samples for example um, and I worked on uh, some tools that those uh, robots use um, as well as working on a machine that you basically uh, overboard and it takes core samples of the uh, at the bottom of the ocean and then puts them in a uh, stack for later geological uh, examination. Oh, that's fantastic. And since you love the ocean, I was wondering, are you a scuba diver? No, you know, I uh, wish I, I, no. <laughs> I yeah, I, I, that was definitely something on my bucket list that I want to do. Uh, my wife is like scared of even snorkeling. And so I'm not, I'm not going to blame it on her, but it is definitely not one of the uh, things that we, um, we, we, we pushed to do, you know, we, we did skydiving and that was on her bucket list and that, I'd hope to do a scuba diving soon. 
Uh, well, at least you've done skydiving. Like that, that terrified me. Like I've done, I've done both scuba and skydiving and, uh, I have the only way I could have launched myself out of a plane is if someone forced me and luckily you're strapped in tandem with someone. <laughs> right. So that, that made it easier. Uh, cause I had no choice or like, okay, one, two, then you're just gone. <laughs> yeah. And your heart like stops for a few seconds and your stomach is in your throat and it's just like everything is still and quiet. <laughs> where did you it's go nice. skydiving? Oh, in Houston, there's a bunch of places where there's some local airports, and they'll they'll take you up, and um, it's a it's a pretty good area for that. Yeah, I've uh, I've heard good things. I did it in New Zealand a few years ago, uh, meaning to go again uh, somewhere else, but that's pretty exciting. Now you sent me over this really nice flowchart, which I'm going to share in the show notes with the recommended timeline for bringing your idea to market. I'm curious, like I have my own opinion on why it's so important to go through the development stages before you get funding, but why do you think that's a good idea? Yeah. And so I put together this chart based on what I saw other businesses were doing. It's not something that I created because I'm just you know, that intelligent, I definitely don't think I'm the smartest person in the room. I, I like to think of myself as the hardest working. Um, but I've, I looked and saw what my entrepreneur bosses were doing, the small business owner bosses that I had that hired me. Uh, I saw what some of the large companies were doing, like IBM that I worked for and some of the other companies that were fortune, you know, 50, 500 companies. And they pretty much took the same steps to market. They might have more people on their team and they might be doing things in parallel, but in general, and you know, different tools with different names and different processes, but in general, they kind of follow the same process. Um, and so that's why the flowchart looks the way that it does is because it's kind of been vetted in a way. I mean, I think the reason that it's, and my opinion on why it's done that way is because you, you minimize your risk as you go through the process um, and you basically stack value. You add value step by step. And by adding that value, you're reducing the risk as you move through the process. So when you finally get to funding, um, you've done a lot of that upfront work to hopefully minimize that, the, the, the chances of your investment not, you know, not working out. Yeah. Cause it's so common with hardware startups. Like for example, is you will raise the money with crowdfunding, but you once you actually get into manufacturing, you're going to uncover so many bugs or things, problems that you didn't see in the prototyping stage that now accounts for you being over budget from the money you have to spend from crowdfunding. So it's super common for you have to go and look for additional investment to bridge the gap. And because the prototype in manufacturing stages is going to cost you a lot more than what you've raised through crowdfunding. And so you almost want to limit how much that damage is going to be by doing as much of the footwork ahead of time. Right. Absolutely. No. And uh, you have to look at it as an investment that will hopefully avoid some of the larger mistakes that you could get into. And it's a very step-by-step -step iterative process. You know, that's the flowchart looks like it's one direction, but really what you're doing is you're, it's almost like a guess and check method where every couple steps along the way, you're verifying it somehow. You're testing your market. You're validating your, what your customers think about it. You're testing the actual product and you're putting all of the feedback, all the input back into the design so you can refine it. 
before you're going out for manufacturing and funding. Yeah. And I mean, the f- step one, get idea. But then you go into, before you develop a prototype, you want to validate that market first before you put money into a prototype. So can you walk me through what you mean by validate market? Yeah, for me, that's a really quick go, no go. You Google search the you know the product idea that you have and you see what barriers to entry there are in your market. Do you need to get agency approval like FCC or FDA approval and then go through some rounds of testing for that? Do you need certific- independent certifications that maybe you need to pay money for? Are there specific regulations like the Child Safety uh, Protection Act where you know it's for toys and things that um, pe- uh, kids may put in their mouths and things like that that have to be made from certain materials? Um, find all that stuff out first and it will help you sort through you know, maybe you have five ideas floating down in your head. It might help you prioritize the ones that look like might take a lot more money to develop. And you know, maybe you can focus on the smaller ones first. Right. That makes sense. And um, would you at this stage, like, recommend you speak to, like, because a lot of this information for me, I would struggle finding that online. So are there any per- legal professionals you would recommend that you reach out to in the stage or... Oh, you know, that's a good question. I, Other than contacting designers and engineers that have experience with those products, I think um, the reason I say Google is because there's so much information out there now that's where you've got these governing bodies and agencies that have been set up to monitor the products in their industry or to guide the development of products. Um, there's, you know, some of them might be behind a paywall because you're not a member and you have to pay for them, but at least you have an idea that they're out there and you might be able to contact someone in industry that, you know, that can give you a copy. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can reach out to a designer engineer for that. I think this is, for me, this is a really quick, um, it's just a quick go, no go, because if you spend too much time on it, you can probably spend weeks researching it and get down, bogged down in the weeds. And really the idea is to say, do I need to go through fifty or a hundred thousand dollars of approvals, or is this something that I can just create in my kitchen and sell on Amazon? Right. And at what stages do you need certain certifications? Right. Right. Exactly. Because I've been on projects where we don't get FDA approval until after the fact, but that may not be the case for your product. So just see, I guess, when in the timeline it makes sense. Right. Absolutely. And that. My only point for validating that market is to say, okay, how big of a niche is it? What is the potential for, yeah, and personally, I like niches. I, I like to go down to to speak to this previously unmarketed audience, you know, the, the people that have been left out that feel like maybe the solution isn't quite a fit for them, mm-hmm. um, and, and especially if it's local and then expanding on that. So once you perfect everything, then you can kind of grow it. And so uh, when I say validating market, I don't mean going in there and saying, can you make $50 million? Uh, it's kind of, for me, it's almost like, well, can I make 100000 or can I make up my manufacturing costs with it on the first run if I focus you know, on this tight group? And if I can, then it's a go. Awesome. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that clarification. Oh, wait, before I forget, I need to thank our sponsors over at BackerKit for um, making the show possible. Thanks, guys. And if you are looking for a fulfillment software tool to help you remove the headache from fulfilling 
orders, be it digital or product-based, head over to backerkit.com. They have worked with over 2,000 project creators and have delivered more than 3.5 million orders to backers just like yours. They are the leading in the industry. They're amazing guys. And I actually have a link in the show notes for a 50% discount off of your setup fee with them. So be sure to head over, grab that link, and they'll get you all set up. Now, once you have validation and you know this is something that you can sell a minimum manufacturing run and you know what you have to do to bring it to market, um, you develop a prototype. But in my experience with crowdfunding, there are different kinds of prototypes. So are we looking at creating the final prototype or like no, what's and, that first one? Yeah, and I think it depends on, on the product. Um, there was a, a guest on uh, my podcast, uh, Kelly Costello, who created uh, Puppy Cake, which is cake mix for dogs. Um, she could obviously iterate her product really quickly because you can mix things in your kitchen and, and you effectively create the functional prototype from step one. Um, but for more complicated products, uh, maybe you've got electronics or things that will take a lot of fabrication, uh, I suggest people to just create a concept prototype where you're visually trying to show, or maybe through a mock-up or model, trying to show your target market, this is what I'm thinking of. Um, a lot of times, whenever you have conversations with people, which is kind of the next step, is... Uh, they want to see something. They want to put their hands on it. They want to touch it. Otherwise, you're just kind of describing something, you know, from a, a word cloud or from, uh, you know, a photo or something, and it might not connect with them as much. So I try to make something as uh, physical as possible. Okay, cool. And provisional patents. I mean, do you always recommend filing for? Because provisional is the first step before you get a full patent, right? Correct. So would you? always suggest you file for a provisional patent if you're going to crowdfunding? Uh, you know, I think it depends. I think you have to look out there on the market and do a quick patent search through Google Patents, or if you want to hire a uh, patent attorney, you can. Um, but uh, you can certainly file for a provisional patent yourself if you want, if you get to that point. It's maybe two or $300 uh, with a USPTO. And there's some really good books on Amazon that will kind of walk you through the process with examples. Um, that way you get that patent pending status. But... Um, the, I don't. I, I hesitate to say everybody needs to file for one. I think everyone rushes to to that point to say, "Hey, I need five or ten thousand dollars from a rich investor so I can file for my patent," and they haven't even gotten to the point of confirming that they have a functioning product yet. Um, so I, the only reason I bring up filing a patent application, a provisional application at this point, is that it protects you a little bit when you're having these conversations with customers. And that way you're able to hold that initial date when you first came up with the idea if you think that you really have something that uh, is, is worth fighting for. And by fighting for, I mean going to court for and really spending some money defending. Right. And how much time do you have between filing a provisional and the full patent application? Uh, one year. So basically okay. you have, you've got one year to file. You file your provisional patent and then you go out there and that's when you can talk to everybody outside of the people that were involved in inventing the idea and including manufacturers, your target market, um, everybody, designers that are involved. Uh, and my goal would be to try to get the market to pay for the patent and hopefully start selling early prototypes or start selling the actual manufactured units within that year while you're still patent pending. So you can funnel some of that money back into lawyers' fees for 
uh, having them generate the uh, full patent application. Yeah, so technically you could file a patent, raise a um, launch crowdfunding campaign, and if successful, then you can account for that when you're using some of those pre-orders to fund the patent. Yeah, if you're fast enough, if you can do that within the first year. Cool, yeah. That sounds great. Because um, I find that like a couple of uh, clients I've spoken to, they didn't want to file a provisional patent because they knew that China was going to rip them off anyways. Yeah, and I mean, that's... I've got a couple products actually that I'm working on where there's one product that I didn't bother and then there's one product where there's one particular aspect of it that is very unique in the industry that I thought, okay, that's what I want to capture. Um, and then, like you said, uh, China may or may not rip you off. Your manufacturer may copy your designs to other people. I've definitely seen it happen even in the U.S. with U.S. manufacturers Whoa. with NDAs in place. Um, so that's just something you have to prepare yourself for. However, in China, if it happens in China, do I really want to go and get a um, – I think it's an NNN type of an agreement where it's like an NDA, but it has a little bit more teeth. Um, do you want to go over there with uh, a lawyer or have hire a lawyer there to defend your interests in a market that you may not understand, right? Is it even important to you to protect your idea in other countries? Um, and if the answer is that it's going to hold you back because now you've got patents that you need to file in four or five different markets and that will set you back 10,000 each, you know, I'm hard pressed to uh, to t give somebody that advice. You know, for me, it would say, "Hey, you know what? You launch in the U.S., which is one of the larger markets, and see how it goes. And hopefully, your the market share that you get from dominating in that one market and being first to market is enough to pull you through. Otherwise, you've just invested all this uh, in lawyer fees that don't may or may not pay back for you." Yeah, oh, that's a great way to look at that. Because I find that. Um I mean, people are getting better at this, but when they launch crowdfunding campaigns, only some of them are looking at this from a long-term business venture standpoint. But so the ones that are looking at it as starting a business, um, they may get bogged down by the technicalities and uh, laws and stuff like that. And sometimes you just need to know, okay, uh, in a year or two years from now, what am I willing and not willing to do? And then this is what I am going to focus on and what I won't. Or you can also like cross that bridge when you get to it as opposed to doing it all at once. Right, absolutely. I mean, if you think that, and realistically, even with patents, even with all this protection, people may still copy your idea. I mean, look at Apple and look at all the other knockoffs that they have to fight off consistently. Uh, it just depends on if you're targeting a large enough market where people feel like you're leaving money on the table. Um, so, you know, there's definitely no guarantees for any of that. No, I, I fully get it. So once you have filed that patent and you have a conceptual, we'll say even a drawing of a prototype or something where you can show people maybe it's not functional, but you have here next step five is validate customer needs. So what What is yeah. that? Yeah, so and one more thing I wanted to add on that conceptual prototype. So it might be just some something that you put together using foam core. Like you go to the art supply store, they've got these clays that will like air dry. They've okay. got all, all sorts of awesome supplies that you could use. Like it's basically an artist rendering in, in like people space, in meat space, right? Um, and uh, I also like to go to the dollar store and like make Frankenstein prototypes using pieces of other products because they're like super cheap at the dollar store, right? You, there's no way that you could get those components off the shelf for that for a dollar. 
chip to you. Yeah, Frankenstein so, prototypes. It's great. Yeah, and so, so basically you're just putting something together, and yeah, you can make it nice and paint it, and so it's kind of a little bit more polished, but the goal is to get something quickly out there that shows the general idea of what you're you know, what you're looking to make and then get out there and start talking to customers, um, as quickly as you can and, and talk to, I would say 15 to 25 people have actual conversations with them and, and ask a lot of questions. Are these like your textbook customer interviews you're talking about? Uh, no, it's kind of, uh, you're, you're stalking people <laughs> where, where they're expect, you know, you expect your target market to be, and you're just kind of hanging out there and having open-ended conversations to say, um, you know, maybe you lead the conversation a little bit and say, what do you think about, uh, you know, snorkeling gear or whatever it is. And, and then have them say, oh, well, this is what I think about it. And, and then have them, and you can maybe steer the conversation towards the problem that you think you're solving and then have them kind of restate the problem in their own words to you and to confirm that you understand the problem better than they do. And at this point, are you showing them the Frankenstein prototype? Maybe not because it's a bit awkward because you're running up to somebody and saying, hey, check this out, right? I, I, for me, I'm just having a conversation at this point. It's very – I'm hands off when I sell. I'm not really pushy in that way. and People definitely have their own style. Um, I prefer to just come in really lighthearted and have an open-ended conversation like you're a friend and you're um, asking them uh, – you know, to getting them to talk about some of their pain points, which hopefully most people like to do. Um, and then kind of digging in a, a bit further to confirm that um, that your idea fixes some of their pain points. And then you show them the concept, you know, you open the trench coat and, <laughs> and uh, say, ta-da, yeah. And, uh, and it, is this what, you know, I, you know, is this what you were thinking of? And um, they might say, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. Or, you know, what? I didn't think about that. I was thinking about something more like this. It's basically like a conversation starter on your coffee table. I love that. And that's why you also wouldn't go developing full prototype because you need to be open to iterations before you spend thousands of dollars on getting something functional. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't pay somebody a ton of money for this. It would be something that I feel that I'm comfortable making with by myself in my garage or in my kitchen or something like that. The goal is to solicit feedback. It's not to impress people with what you've created. It's just to um, get them to pick on something and then because again people are really visual and they like to handle things and look at things it's just to get them to kind of talk yeah and like interact yep. uh, with that and stuff so um so now you get this feedback and you take it back to the lab is this when you're you now think that you have the final prototype or is there another step in between yeah, and so you, what you may find is that you have these conversations with people, and you might end up tweaking this several times, and until you get to the point where people look at it and say, "Oh, yeah, that's cool," and that's the point where I would go back to to the drawing board and and really flesh out the design, and either hire a designer or you know do the design yourself. Um, and there's you know so many avenues for doing either of those, um, and then having a functional prototype made for you, either by the end manufacturer that you choose or somebody that's more local. Right. Cool. And then at this point, um, after you have a functional prototype, you validate the design. So you're just going back out and speaking to people? Yes, and but with the actual prototype. And you're also testing that design against metrics that you gather doing your, 
your interactions with your target audience in the beginning, you know, because you were pick while, while they're talking, you're picking up on these words that say, um, you know, it'd be great if I could snorkel with this to 30 meters, uh, sorry, scuba dive to this to 30 meters or whatever it is. Uh, it'd be great if I, if it could, uh, if I could keep this outside and it wouldn't get damaged by, uh, by the sun because they keep all my gear outside. Um, and, and those all translate into technical requirements that at now you've created a prototype that hopefully should meet those that should check those off. And so you'll be looking to literally go down to 30 meters and test it, leave it out in the sun for a week and see what happens to it. Um, and then have conversations with the people to say, Hey, is this what you imagined it to be? Mm-hmm. Now, is there any difference between the final prototype and actually, no, they're not difference, but what is the process between you have your final prototype and you're now ready to bring that to manufacturing? So what is that process to get your prototype ready to manufacture on a large scale? Yeah, so on a small scale, creating a prototype is still going to be pretty expensive, but it, it doesn't really account for some of the some of the details in manufacturing, especially if you're going to do mass manufacture where you're talking about units that aren't handmade. Um, they have to go through an assembly line, and they need certain features on there to make it easier to manufacture. Um, or you're trying to be efficient with your use of materials, especially with metals um, that come in certain sheet sizes, and they've got certain tolerances that you're working with. So there's all sorts of things that are that I wouldn't really deal with in the beginning because that's way too much detail to worry about in the beginning. That now you have to kind of tweak the design a bit, and if you don't understand your target market and if you don't really have a deep understanding of the problem that you're solving it's really hard for you to make those help the manufacturer make those decisions to say hey it's okay if you change this color or you change this material or you put a hole here uh, to make it cheaper um, because that's not important to my product or to my target market um, versus not knowing how to answer that because the manufacturer won't be able to help you they're just they're really good at manufacturing they have no idea about scuba diving yeah, I get that. Uh, what are some of the costs associated with manufacturing? Like, I know there's tooling. Um, what else do we have? <clears throat> yeah, so uh, tooling is just a rough word that's kind of all-encompassing. And depending on who you talk to, they've got different definitions for you. Um, but it's basically uh, specially made tools that are used for the manufacture of your product, whether it's to hold them down while they're being machined or they're special cutters that kind of like a cookie cutter, they punch something specific. Um, you also have uh, molds that specifically in like plastics and uh, like silicones and elastomers and things like that that have to get machined. Um, and there's different materials that you can make those molds and tools from, and that's going to vary the cost a lot uh, by you know 100% easily, uh, depending on you know the life of the mold and how much you want to get things out of it. And um, so there and there's also some like setup fees that you might pay up front. Um, so that's in general. That's basically the 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 main things involved with mass manufacturing. Some things there's, of course, there's if you've got electronics, you've got runs of certain you know components that might be special order. Um, and if especially if you're using like raw materials that are hard to come by, there you're going to have some of those costs too, um, where the manufacturer has to you know have a minimum buy of some raw material or bits that go into your end product. Yeah, I love that. And my last question is when someone is looking to partner up with a design firm to bring their product to market, 
Um, I know one that I'm working with. We have ties with manufacturers in China. Um, but are there like two or three things you could think of that would be good to um, look for? Or like, can you give two or three pieces of advice when looking for a design firm that would be suitable for developing a, a product? Yeah. And so I'll, I'll actually, I like how you say design firm because some people assume that they can go to the manufacturer and the manufacturer can um, build what they want based on a collage of photos that you put together, which oh, they can. Okay. <laughs> and it's, and it's, and it's totally doable, right? But I've seen it done. It's possible. Um, I will caution, uh, don't have the man, in my opinion, I wouldn't have the manufacturer create the design because you want to be the owner of the design. Your, it is your product. Um, and if you ask them to do the design, not only do they not have the, any of the insight that you do, um, you may find that if you're not happy with their manufacturing costs, it's very difficult for you to take that design elsewhere. Um, gotcha. Yeah. The, and the, the, but the, the, when you're looking for a design firm, so to answer your original question, um, number one, see who owns the IP, the intellectual property. Uh, normally, firms should give you all rights to the intellectual property unless they're giving you a pretty big discount on the design fees. Ooh, yeah, um, that's good to know. And you'll also want to stipulate that you get possession of all of that, the raw files, whatever it was used to create you know, your design. That way, if anything happens to the design firm or if you will need to make changes to the design, more than likely you're going to have a version two of your product because you'll find out something um, much later that you want to add. Uh, you, uh, you'd like to go back to the original design firm, but just in case you want to have the freedom to be able to take those files and you don't want the, you know, a new company to start from scratch. Yeah, because that could be dangerous <laughs> and just a waste, right? Well, well it would be a waste. Huge waste. And, uh, yeah, and you're paying for, you know, make sure that when you're looking at the terms and conditions that it's very clear this is how much money you're paying, this is what you're getting back. It should be a roughly itemized uh, and depending on what the firm is doing for you, if they're not creating prototypes or anything like that, they're just doing design, you might only have one or two lines on there. Uh, but if they're doing like an all-encompassing project for you, I would prefer to see an itemized invoice to see where, how those costs break down because otherwise you'll see just a lump price for twenty or 50000 and um, it's, it's really hard to kind of compare uh, two firms against each other. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Well, this has been awesome digging into this. I think the show has needed this for a while. So it's been great having you on. Um, if people want to find out more about what you're working on, uh, where's a good place to send them? Yeah, if you just go to theproductstartup.com, uh, you'll, you can get links to contact me at the bottom. And there's also a link to my podcast where I talk to other small business owners that have basically walked through this process, some of which have gone through crowdfunding, um, some that have just kind of done it through their own funds. Wicked. Yeah, it's called The Product Startup. And guys, this has been great. Thanks again, Philip. If you are ready to launch your crowdfunding campaign or are thinking about it, don't forget about the actual other side of it where you need to know how to build an audience and market that. And that process is generally three to six months and should be done in tandem with everything that Philip has gone through today. Head over to crowdfundinguncut.com where you can pick up the ultimate product launch checklist. Um, it's a nice freebie that I put together because a couple of my audience were begging for it, so I made it, and we've had some great reviews so far. Apart from that, if you are digging the show, please do head over to iTunes and leave an honest review. It does help the show get found, 
And uh, thanks so much. Love you guys. And we'll see you next week. Are you launching a product on either Kickstarter or Shopify and you're feeling completely overwhelmed with the process? Hi there, my name is Kirsten, the CEO of Launch and Scale. To date, we've helped several online sellers sell millions of dollars online and scale their business from zero to seven figures by focusing on building an audience of fans that will actually convert into paying customers. If you're serious about building a seven-figure e-commerce brand with less time and less risk, you should check out our product launchpad. PLP is a proven accelerator that takes you step-by-step through the process of launching and scaling your product brand. Brands like the Monk Manual, Aberlite, Series Chill, Jamstack, and several others were all launched using our product launchpad. So if you'd like to be our next success story, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more. And for a limited time, we're offering a seven-day trial of the product launchpad for only $1. Again, go to launchandscale.co slash PLP to learn more.